Hi everyone, welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I'm Jonah, and joining me today is Camden Martin. How are you doing, Camden? I'm doing great. How about yourself, Jonah? I am good. I'm here in 80 degree San Diego, California, and you're in snowy... 20 degree Maine. Auburn, Maine. I don't know, a little bit less, probably. Oh, you know. Yeah. But... um. We have a good episode today that we're both That really is true. About. We do have a very strong episode today. Um, but before we get into that, um, let's go over some news that is related to our topic of what we're going to yes. be talking about today. Um, so my piece of news comes from Japan, um, where there is plans to construct a U.S. United States Marine Corps base in Ara Bay in on the island of Okinawa in Japan and the bay where they they want to build this base um, has the largest colony of rare blue coral in the world and they want to build this base you know it goes out into the bay so they have to basically create land and destroy the reef and of course that is an issue um you know, already this this project's been progressing slowly for about 20 years, but there have been a lot of challenges for creating the artificial land because the seafloor is really soft. And consequently, they have to inject 3 million tons of soil into the bay to make it sturdy <sighs> enough to hold the base. Um, as if we can't just contain our environmental destruction to our own country, we got to... Yeah. And there's already a base on Okinawa. It's like, why? I know. It's like imperial imperial environmental destruction. Yeah, exactly. Empire um, strikes back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, that was really funny. Anyways, so any, like I said, it's been going on for 20 years. And just because they have these technical issues and they have to get reapprove for things with the government it's just taken a really long time to and a lot of money to destroy this ecosystem um and so you know issues include sedimentation from all that construction um increased runoff from the base which is obviously going to threaten a fragile and unique coral ecosystem uh currently the construction zone is delineated like into the bay with buoys and hanging from the buoys are draped nets that hang seven meters deep. And so not only is that just a threat for fish getting entangled as well as the northernmost population of dugong, but the net is, it's just so large that it interrupts the um, current flow. And, you know, of course the United States and Japanese government See mitigation as a solution, um, as if that's always this magical solution to development. Um, but the fisheries division there in Okinawa estimates that it'll take 74,000 coral structures to be transplanted elsewhere in order for the mitigation to be um, anywhere near sufficient. But of course, that's you know not taking into account any ecological relationships on the reef. That's only just moving the coral. 
Um, and the, the Prime Minister of Japan has made some pretty dubious claims about the transplant, saying they've already occurred. But conservation conservationists and researchers on Okinawa said that there have only been like eight to nine transplants. So he's basically making up that there's been like almost 70,000 coral transplants, but there's been less than 10. Um, and and the, just the transplant process isn't foolproof. You know, corals that are transplanted only have like a 50% chance of survival after being moved. Yeah. Corals take a long time to develop. It just, you know, just... <laughs> It's not like a plant. You can't just... <laughs> yeah, and, and the whole reef as a system as well. Right. It's it's not just about the individual coral. It's about everything that makes up that community. And the ignorance is astounding. Um, and this is what's even more astounding, is that last February, there was a non-binding, unfortunately, referendum in Okinawa about the base construction. And 72% of Okinawans voted that they did not want the construction to occur. So the majority of the native people don't want this to happen, but the United States is moving forward with it. And it's, it's just shocking. Shocking, but sometimes not that surprising, unfortunately. Yeah. Alrighty. So with some kind of grisly news, we're going to have some little bit of positive news here. Granted, different. Uh, so, jumping from Okinawa, we're jumping to the Indian state of Tamil Nadu at the capital of Chennai. Uh, so, this is an article that appeared in Manga Bay recently, I think it was a couple days ago. Um, and this has to deal with a, a restored uh, f- uh, wetland that was actually found right in the IT corridor of Chennai. So, right in the downtown, not downtown, but right in the capital city. So, you know, highly dense, you know, populated area. Uh, the wetland, I think, if I'm not mistaken, covered about uh, 18 acres or so. So nothing huge. Um, but the idea was uh, about a year ago, um, an NG- local NGO in collaboration with different governments um, wanted to improve the quality of water and also track birds. They're kind of realizing just the gravity of the situation. Um, they also experienced some water shortages, especially this year in June. Um, and, uh, that having restored that wetland, it allowed them to actually be able to use a year later now, the summer when they were having those water shortages to actually use it for washing and bathing and, uh, bringing some relief actually. So the background story to this is, you know, kind of picture this, this wetland, you know, right behind, um, you know, some buildings, if we have the, we'll have the link to go check it out so you can actually see the before and after. Pretty shocking. Um, so the, the body of water was polluted, you know, with solid garbage covered with a really dense green layer of water hyacinth. So if anyone's not familiar with hyacinth, I'd go check it out. They're very invasive. Um, they kind of, they occupy, they occupy the surface of the, the, the water and not allowing anything, you know, very little light to get through and oxygen and so on and so forth. So very invasive, um, and so that, you know, they kill other aquatic plants and organisms underneath them. Uh, so once, after restoration work began, I think it came to roughly about 1.4 or so million rupees, which equivalent to about $20,000 granted, you know, different realities, different sums. Um, and that restoration of back in, uh, back a year ago in, t- in 2018, um, 
actually what I found out was um, they had rented out several uh, like you know um, excavators in order to remove some of the uh, specifically the waste but also the wa water hyacinths and get this they actually removed a total if I'm not mistaken let me double check my numbers here I think I had wrote it down uh, yes 18 million um, 18 sorry not 18 million but 18 tons of water hyacinth <laughs> this is a plant on its own, you know, that probably weighs, I don't know, a oh pound or something gosh. like that. So it's just copious, copious amounts of water <laughs> hyacinth. So, you know, very, you know, poor oxygen, these kinds of things. Uh, they removed, like I said, the solid waste and so forth. And then after that, um, you know, they took precautions and avoid killing, you know, and injuring any birds or any other wildlife present. And that really encouraged a lot of other species to show up. Um, so about a year after there's arrival of more, uh, native fish and turtles have come back to the pond. Um, you know, the, the, the buns of, if you will, of the pond, the bonds, excuse me, were strengthened. Um, different enzyme solutions were brought in to improve the quality of water and so on and so forth. And so it's really become not only this, you know, initially this kind of, how would I say, um, kind of like little grassroots project, you know, from some in environmentally concerned people, it actually ended up becoming a project that people in the entire area were very concerned by and started implicating themselves. And not only did they do the change, you know, they got to witness how much that those impacts, you know, um, caused, if you will. And so, you know, they really appreciate it now. And now going forward, it's kind of created all this new generations of new stewards and, you know, created the idea of stewardship for this wetland. And, um, you know, it goes into greater detail, the article about, um, you know, Shania as a whole actually used to have about 474 other wetland complexes within, you know, the boundaries of the city. Um, and a lot of them are smaller bodies, you know, whether it's reservoirs, lakes, ponds, and so on and so forth. Um, natural, man-made, um, but most of them don't even exist now. You know, they've either been completely replaced or they're full of garbage once again. And now people are kind of having it enough and they're realizing the errors of their ways and trying to do something about it. So granted, there's a lot of work ahead of them, but it's pretty encouraging, um, you know, when local people take it into their own hands and train, trying to change something and make the environment a little bit cleaner and whatnot and actually being able to reap the benefits of that. So, you know, a little bit of contrast. Granted, it's not the same scope as a, a very unique reef system, but uh, a coral system, excuse me, but uh, it's definitely, uh, you know, a positive, uh, you know, a step in the positive direction, right direction. I'm just imagining 18 tons. like being buried under 18 tons of water. <laughs> what did they do with that? I don't. I mean, where yeah, where do you even put that? They, they use that and filled another wetland. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sheesh. Yes, yeah. So anyways, yeah. um well that, that that story is appropriate because in this episode and in the next one, we're going to be talking about wetlands. Um which is yeah, a, a really broad topic um, that we can't even come close to covering. We could probably even do a whole podcast about yeah, wetlands, I yeah. think. And even in two episodes, we're not going to be able to cover everything that we could talk about about wetlands. Um, but Camden and I both really like wetlands as an ecosystem. And like I said, there's a lot to talk about it. And... Um, you know, we, we just in this episode, we're going to break this into two parts. So we'll have two episodes on wetlands. 
But in this episode, we just want to go over the basics of wetlands. So I'm sure everyone knows what a wetland is, but there's lots of different types of wetlands and um, they're different all around the world. And, and so we want to kind of get into that. And we just want listeners to, to appreciate the importance of wetlands, the complexities of wetlands, and their current sad state in a lot of places. Um, and then in the next episode, we'll dive deeper into some um, some more stuff about wetlands, including some examples of wetland systems around the world and and um, how they're faring and, and some more restoration that's going on with those. Um, but to, you know, to start, we have to define a wetland. Like I said, I think everyone probably, when you say wetland, can think of what it is, but it's such a broad term. Um, think about it, wetland. I mean, that's a, there's a lot of wetland out there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, put simply, it's really just where water covers the soil. Um, For a long, you know, a greater portion of the year. Yeah, and so, you know, types of wetlands that we'll, we'll cover more shortly, you know, rivers, lakes, marshes, peatlands, mangroves, deltas, floodplains, flood forests, even agricultural fields, um, different types of swamps. And some even actually consider coral reefs to be wetlands, um, which which you don't really think about that. When it's already completely about, submerged as part of the ocean, yeah. Yeah, but it, but when you think of places like um, the Amazon Delta, just right outside the Amazon Delta, they recently discovered a reef yeah. at the Delta there because it was just hidden under the. Um, it's possible we need in to the muddy water. conceive our conceptions of uh, of what a wetland is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but but for our purposes, we're we're just talking about where water is covering the soil, and you know they're not always fresh water. Um, and actually a significant amount of wetlands are coastal where fresh and salt water meet. So brackish water, um, and wetlands are found worldwide on every continent. In fact, even Antarctica, and they exist in every climatic zone. So they're really widespread and hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll realize how vital they are. Not just one of the things that's, that's interesting about wetlands is that they're, um, very interconnected with other types of habitats, which is something that makes them really important. Um, best estimates are that wetlands cover six to seven percent of the earth, uh, but this is probably an underestimate, just because we're we still have some poor assessments of land cover in parts of South America, Africa, and Russia. So there's probably more than seven percent wetlands covering the earth. Um, just by region, um, in North and South America, wetlands by area make up 10%. In Europe, they're 5%. Russia, over 10%. China, 7%. South America, over 20%, which is the lar- largest proportion of wetlands. Um, Sub-Saharan Africa, over 9%. Tropical Asia, close to 3%. And Australia, 3%. Um, and, you know, we didn't really even talk about northern africa where there's also lots of wetlands but the point is that you know the amount of wetlands varies where you are um on the globe but they're pretty much ubiquitous and then 
Um, even more surprising is that freshwater wetlands only occupy about 1% of the Earth's surface, yet they support 10% of all known species and one-third of all vertebrates. So that should tell you how significant these habitats are because that's just freshwater wetlands. Um, yes, yeah. So that 1%, means, yeah. Yeah, so that means that the saltwater or, or brackish wetlands make up you know six more than six percent of the earth's surface so they're they're super biodiverse um is is basically the take home yes indeed so so let's get let's dive into a little bit of the kind of nitty-gritties on the different types of wetlands like we were referring to earlier on um so real kind of quick disclaimer you know classifications of wetlands definitely vary depending on the source so the types of wetlands excuse me are really on a spectrum which can make it difficult either to put them in a you know in in clear-cut categories that being said there are definitely a handful you know of broad wetland types that are generally accepted um you know of course within these types there's a lot of variation like anything um, especially across broad geographic areas, and then also once again, you know, we we're talking a little about conception of you know what you know we think they are. Um, because of that spectrum, wetlands are you know so is in they're so ex- uh, extensive. Um, we can't be as comprehensive, of course, like we were talking about earlier, as but you know about how you know be detailed about how different wetlands are and so forth. So this at least give um, our listeners. Uh, some you know good information about the different broad types. So, if we were to dive into rivers, like that dive in, huh? That works for today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, rivers, floodplains, and deltas. So rivers and the tributaries definitely provide critical drinking water and food for people and wildlife all across the world. You know, most human settlements are found directly on a river. Um, in many regions, their flows, you know, also provide water for crop irrigation um, along the lines of rivers and floodplains, you know, areas that are temporarily inundated, um, you, know, you know, with high flows, people are, you know, uh, people and wildlife can be found there. Uh, these dynamic areas can be of, you know, definitely significant seasonal importance, you know, ranging, we can think of, you know, um, like the Brahmaputra Delta, for example, you know, you definitely, you know, during the warmer period, it's going to not be as high. And of course, you know, when it's flooding, it's really tumultuous. Um, and that, you know, can be very dangerous. Uh, that being said, uh, one example is, you know, in terms of seasonal flooding uh, that we had, I think you and Mariana has spoke about is in terms of Gary ecology. Um, so for those who remember in the Gary Ecology, they talk a little about the importance of that flooding. And if those who don't remember or didn't get a chance to uh, listen to that podcast, definitely check that episode out on Garials. Um, you know, rivers, as in principle, transport nutrients downstream, you know, and they make their way to deltas. And so there's, therefore, those deltas are becoming, you know, they're also very rich. Um, these rivers then terminate also um, into lakes or an ocean, generally speaking. Uh, in deltas, rivers slow down and spread about spread out on a landscape, clearing other types of wetlands such as estuaries, marshes, and floodplains. Some of the most impressive and extensive wetlands on Earth are river deltas. They also are some of the most eco- ecologically productive areas. So you know, with, like we had mentioned, Amazon Delta, Nile Delta, so on and so forth. And we'll talk about them later on. Um, 
watercourses and their deltas usually give way to a combination of other types of wetlands like marshes and um, swamps. So what are marshes? Marshes are you know, broadly defined and can occur simultaneously with some of the other broad wetland types that we're describing. Uh, they are seasonally or permanently flooded areas dominated by herbaceous plants such as grasses and grasses and reeds. Also woody plants are present, generally low-growing uh, shrubs for example. Uh, marshes often occur on the periphery of other wetland areas such as lakes and rivers, delta edges, so on and so forth. They occur both in fresh and salt water and also where they both meet and become brackish. Coastal marshes are often called estuaries or lagoons where their habitats provide a buffer for storm surges. Um, these frequently occur in river deltas and are consequently highly productive areas due to nutrition flow from upstream. Um, you know, marshes, if you will, it's kind of, you know, the the trans, you know, the uh, how I say, transition from land to water. You know, it's on periphery. It's, you know, you're you're getting those kinds of species of herbaceous plants that can tolerate a degree of, you know, dry, also tolerate being inundated. You know, it's really those transition areas, if you will. And also we should, marshes are like generally in shallow, shallow right. water as well, just because of the type of plants. It's exactly right. Um, swamps are definitely, you know, they're largely defined as having saturated soil, you know, constantly or predominantly um, and dominated by woody vegetation. Um, this broad category, of course, covers, you know, mangrove forests, peatlands like bogs, moors, and perma even permafrost tundra. Um, and other flooded forests, you know, we can think of, um, you know, there's all kinds of different uh, you know, flooded forests we could take and we'll talk about a little bit later on. Um, these different types and examples of swamps are endless because of the category's broad you know, definition. Um, similar to marshes, uh, we have swamps that can occur in marsh and salt water. Uh, coastal swamps, especially mangrove forests, are also critical, of course, in protection, like we talked about with um, marshes against storm surges. You know, they're acting as a buffer zone. Some of the most extreme effects of natural disaster um, disasters, excuse me, occur in marshes and swamps because these areas have become so developed and populated. Um, you know, but development doesn't change the role that they had as storm buffers. Uh, lakes. So lakes are usually fed and drained by waterways, but are definitely defined by a localized basin filled with water. Um, so. You know, we'll throw the question out. What is the largest lake in the world? What do you? What is it, Jonah? Lake Baikal. That's correct. If I'm not mistaken, it can be found at a mile deep in certain locations, so extensive that it has its own freshwater species of seal. <laughs> uh, pretty crazy. If you don't know yeah. Lake Baikal, go check it out. Um, and. So they're usually found on land and apart from the ocean, um, thus distinguishing from lagoons. Obviously, lakes play essential roles in an ecosystem covering huge areas and holding huge volumes of fresh water for humans and wildlife, acting as you know veritable reservoirs. Other wetland types often border lakes, and these you know borders uh, borders uh, suffer the same issues of degradation and loss as coastal wetlands, for example. Um, diving into wet grasslands now, wet grasslands yet again a very broad you know, broadly defined category that's generally defined by temporary flooding, either from precipitation or overflow from other wetlands, in addition to, you know, providing wildlife habitat, especially, uh, 
you know, for seasonal, um, seasonally migratory species, wetland grasses, you know, feed groundwater stores as their soils slowly soak into surface water. Um, I remember being really kind of, when I was younger, I remember watching a documentary about uh, the Danube and not the Danube Delta, but along its course. And you would find in these um, agriculture areas along the Danube, there would be grasslands, you know, that, you know, it was either wheat or whatever. And come springtime, you know, when it would overflow, those, you know, became wet grasslands. And a lot of carp would actually go and they would fray right in those grasslands. And it's just, you know, it's just interesting concept. I just remember being blown away with it as a little, you know, as a child, like thinking, you know, Three months later, here you are harvesting something, or four months later, here you're harvesting, and then four months prior, there's there's fish fraying right there. Just it's a really interesting yeah. concept, but it, it's really neat, you know. Um, so other other wetlands, big shocker. There's man-made ones. <laughs> um, human landscape alteration, especially for agriculture purpose, has resulted in artificial wetlands in many places. Um, these wetlands are particularly significant when it comes to crops that require, and you know, inundation as part of the growing cycle. So, ding a ding ding, rice, for example, uh, rice is the de- is the third highest production cr- produced crop, excuse me, in the world. Uh, so, rice fields cover a lot of land surface. You know, we think of Southeast Asia. Uh, we can think of uh, other places that you know have a warm enough qu- climate that are humid enough um, to allow rice cultures. Um, and although rice agricultural fields are artificial, they can play and do play an important ecological role more on that. We'll talk, we'll talk a little bit about that more a little bit later on. Uh, but that's interesting. You know, if I think the most typical example, you know, of, you know, these kinds of artificial wetlands are, of course, those um, terraces of, you know, rice terraces that you can find, you know, in the southern southeastern provinces of China and so on and so forth. They're really pretty spectacular. Um so tell me a little bit more, Jonah, about wetland loss, for example. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's pretty bad. Um, you know, throughout history, wetlands, people have looked at wetlands as sort of wastelands because you can't build on them, and so they're they're essentially useless. Um, and so. Because people view them as wastelands, they thought that they should be transformed in a more usable area like agricultural landscapes or forests or, or habitable land where people can live. Um, and consequently, this view has resulted in the greatest loss of wetlands in densely populated areas like Western Europe, China, uh, and, and even in less densely populated areas like Australia, which is really dry, and so there's not as many wetlands there. Um, and then, of course, the United States, because of our agricultural industry in the last um, 100 or so years. Uh, in North America, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand, over 50% of wetlands were converted to more useful, quote-unquote, land uses during the 20th century so half that's, of all wetlands have been lost in these that's areas. needless to say the ones that you know for the last 300 years before then that they started trying to turn into you know a lot of coastal marshes and wetlands uh yeah for example in new brunswick and nova scotia uh were you know um how would i say that there were you know forms of digs uh, not digs but uh, that's the french word but um 
you know, dams and whatnot, so it would dry out the, the coastal marshes that became plains. Very fertile, that's why they did it, but then you lost all of that productive area, so... Yeah, yeah, just that's been... just during the 20th century, exactly. half of them have been lost. Um, and, you know, in other places in the world where there's, like I mentioned before, South America, Africa, um, Russia, we, you know, we don't have complete information on the extent of wetlands, so it's we can't really estimate how much wetland loss there's been because we don't know how much there actually currently is or was. Um, but it's, we, you know, we can still safely say that there's been a sub- substantial loss everywhere. Um, and of course, you know, population growth, increased economic development, um, agriculture, they've been the main culprits behind this degradation and loss of wetlands. And directly, these drivers of this degradation and loss have been infrastructure development, land conversion, water withdrawal, pollution, uh, over-harvesting of fisheries, over-exploitation of wetland resources, and then invasive species are a big one, like those 18 tons of water hyacinth. But, I mean, you know, these aren't, these kind of, Issues aren't unique to wetlands, but they've probably hit wetlands harder than most other habitat types, which is why there's been such a significant loss, especially because people just view them as wastelands. Um, more specifically, there have been some some major things that have degraded wetlands and caused us to lose them. So filling or draining wetlands for agriculture is you know when we're we're saying wetlands have been lost to agriculture it's not like they just started planting stuff there they either got rid of all the water or they filled it in with land so it could be arable um by 1985 56 to 65% of inland and coastal marshes in Europe and North America had been drained for agriculture 27% had been drained in Asia 6% in South America and 2% in Africa so Again, the greatest damage has been done in the Western world um, because of these kind of development um, in recent decades. And then since 1960, the amount of water impounded by dams has increased fourfold in the world, which is crazy. Um, And in a lot of places, like in the United States, parts of the United States, Pacific Northwest, we're starting to realize how harmful those dams are. But then in other parts of the world where they're just trying to catch up, like India, dams are going up like crazy. Um, other ways that wetlands have been degraded is nutrient loading and excess sedimentation, which is caused by land development or agricultural runoff. So, you know, the negative effects of this sedimentation and other types of nutrient loading can extend for hundreds of kilometers from the, the point source. And especially in like at river deltas, you see this a lot where it creates this these dead zones off the coast that extend out for just miles and miles because the water is just starved of oxygen because there's just too much sediment, too many other nutrients. Um, and you get these dead zones and that's, at least here in the states you hear a lot about that 
in in the Gulf Coast from the Mississippi Delta. Um, and this is exactly what is happening and will happen with that blue coral reef in Okinawa that I was talking about earlier, because all those excess nutrients and sediment just choke out the oxygen and um, then the corals and other organisms just can't survive. Um, chemical pollution, that one's pretty straightforward, why that's harmful for wetlands. Urbanization is uh, obviously an issue. Nearly half of the world's cities are coastal, so you can imagine that, that the urban sprawl in the past century to accommodate the increasing urban population has been extremely harmful. Uh, diversion of freshwater flows into estuaries via irrigation and impoundment now prevents 30% of sediment from reaching the ocean because <laughs> it's just just pile it on, pile on the, all the crap on. But, okay, so it prevent, they prevent 30% of sediment from reaching the ocean. However, there's been a net, uh, there's been a 10% net reduction of sediment reaching the ocean because all of our other activities like development and construction have contributed that sediment flow by 20%. So, so the net um, loss is 10%. Oh, naturally, it's a 30% loss, but we're putting in all this other, a lot of times, just garbage sediment, which accounts for that 20%. Um, hopefully that makes sense. Um, and then also you know, diversion of fresh water just also resulted in hypersalinization in coastal wetlands because there's not enough inflow of fresh water. Um, in coastal areas, there's just direct destruction from dredging and coastal construction. So, you know, because people build directly up onto the beach or directly up onto these coastal wetlands, there's significant amounts of erosion and so like on beaches they have to dredge bays for sand bring in sand to basically remake beaches it's just it's it's ridiculous um or bring in sand from other places i don't think we've ever really talked about the How damaging the sand trade that this the sand the sand people <laughs> yeah. sand mafias we we should talk about that sometime because it's one of the most destructive things in the world and it's flying under everyone's radar um but you know we have to find sand and, and sediment to rebuild coasts because we're causing so much erosion because we're just building right up on these things um and then of course we have everyone's favorite non-native species that have been introduced for one reason or another that outcompete native species like those water hyacinth among many others in the San Fran this is crazy in the San Francisco Bay in California there are 210 invasive species and between 1961 and 1995 there was a new invasive species established every 14 weeks <laughs> Moving because over to of, San Francisco. Yeah. And it's because of, sh you know, shipping and, and fishing activities, bringing in stuff from elsewhere. So, you know, all these, all these things that we've heard about, you know, compound all of these 
ways that wetlands are have been and are being degraded with the effects of climate change, you know, altered water levels, increased storm intensity, and tidal surges, which just results in changes in flow regime all around, and then of course changes in water temperature. And so, you know, the way that we develop, especially in coastal wetlands, this issue of increased storm intensity, it's only going to get worse. And that's just, yeah, that's you know, it's like, <laughs> I'm going to say something that's going to get me in trouble. It's just stupid to build in these coastal plains. I just don't, I, I, I it's, uh, I don't feel bad because when someone, their house gets destroyed in one spot and then they build it right back up again. It's like, you are in a storm zone. You're in an area that's meant to be a buffer. That's right. And it just, this development is just, it's just asinine. And yeah, it, it doesn't, yeah. I mean, everyone wants their, like, I guess you want a piece of paradise, but you have to pay the price, I guess. And that's the price. And, uh, you know. It, and you it, just, the, the harm, of course, to everyone's lives when these storms hit, but also the money that goes into rebuilding. Yes, we're going to rebuild. So we could get destroyed again in 10 years when the next major one comes and it's just going to increase in frequency, these storms. And by destroying the wetlands, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, It's like uh, building your house in a, you know, a dry riverbed in, in the, the dry season and, and wondering why, you know, it gets washed away in the, in the yeah. rainy season, you know? Yep. It, it's unfortunate. <sighs> so, um... You know, shifting gears here. Now, the, the next uh, notion I'm going to go over is, you know, why do wetlands matter? And I think, um, you know, that our listeners, you know, those who are listening to us, most likely, you know, know why <laughs> wetlands matter. And uh, but that being said, I think the information that we're going to provide, maybe you can also use as ammunition when you're, you know, talking to people. Um, you know, that is in your entourage that is not always concerned as much about wetlands and whatnot. So here's some, you know, some very pertinent stats about why wetlands matter. Um, so as the a result of the significant degradation and loss of wetlands, wildlife in these ecosystems are highly threatened. You know, that's, that's very plain and, and, you know, very logical. 21% of wetland-dependent birds, for example, are either extinct or globally threatened. You know, their major wetlands are major, um, you know, reproduction zones for birds and whatnot. And if they don't have access or they're not, when they're there, they're under threat or they're not getting quality food and nutrients and so forth. They, you know, they, they, they die or they move and, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, so that's, that's incredibly, you know, we're talking about, you know, 1% of the freshwater accounts for one of every one out of three vertebrate species. Um, so, you know, this is huge. 37% of freshwater-dependent mammals are globally threatened, uh, so this number doesn't even include saltwater species. 20% of the 10,000 freshwater fish, fish species are extinct or threatened. About 33% of amphibians, which rely on freshwater systems, once again, are threatened. 50% of freshwater turtles are threatened, and 75% of Asian turtles are threatened. All six species of marine turtles use coastal wetlands and are all threatened. 44% of crocodilians, which rely exclusive, you know, exclusively on wetlands, are threatened. Uh, like Jonas said, 10% of all you know, species occur in wetlands and making them for hotspots for diversity, and here we are annihilating them. And so uh, you know, it's easy to understand the math here, what's going on. 
Without knowing anything else, it's clear from that, you know, this statistical information alone that wetlands are important for wildlife. For many species, wetlands, you know, wetlands occupy every part of their life history, like I was talking about with, you know, we were talking about migratory bird species, um, or just, um, you know, part of their life history. Uh, because wetlands exist on a landscape alongside other habitat types, they're extremely important as sources of water and in nutrient flow across a landscape. Uh, basically, it's impossible to overstate how important wetlands are because they are so closely tied to all land uses, whether geographical or ecologically. So, you know, whether it's for wildlife, but also for humans. Um, and then, so it's easy to define the specific services wetlands provide to humans and the increasing understanding of these services has provided vital, you know, has proved vital in acquiring protection for wetlands. You know, of course we have wetland, you know, legislation and so on and so forth. It's funny. I was thinking about this, but the first time I, you know, ever was on the show, I just finished my wetland delineating class, delineation class. And so, you know, wetlands are really, really important and really important to understand and to, you know, protect. So it's definitely, difficult and potentially harmful to put economic values on ecosystem services um, you know such as wetlands um, and you know what they provide but in the in today's world it's often necessary to give dollar value so even though wetlands occupy only seven percent of the earth's earth surface the estimated global value which is crazy that we have to do this the estimated global value of their ecosystem you know ecos- ecosystems goods services biodiversity and cultural considerations are greater than all other non-marine ecosystems combined. So that alone, you know, is, you know, is a red flag, you know, kind of let that soak in the most economically important ecosystems are the most ecologically degraded on earth. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, it just made, it is, it's rough stuff. You know, this is, you know, we can't run away from this. This is everything. We have to all do our part in order, you know, to, you know, change this. Um, while this estimate of value has its flaws, of course, because, you know, once again, putting a dollar value on something that, you know, can't always quantify and so on and so forth. Um, there's no doubt that, the you know, the importance, the indubitable importance of wetlands, you know, what they have, the importance, whether it's, econ- you know, ecologically, but also economically, you know, they for sources of water, you know, also, of course, acting as filters for, you know, sources of water and so on and so forth. Um, so let's talk, let's dive in a little bit more. I was talking about, of course, how it's important to humans. So let's dive into that a little bit more. Um, you know, they purify surface and groundwater by filtering sediments and absorbing pollutants. Um, you know, that's kind of done through root systems, you know, collecting sediments, you know, acting as filtration in that, that form. Um, and that's definitely critical in today's land use regime. Um, as already mentioned, coastal wetlands help buffer zone, uh, you know, help buffer storms by st- taking the brunt of tidal surge and flooding. In doing that, they reduce coastal erosion and property damage. Um, so, you know, if you live, I don't know, well, there's some significant mangroves, if I'm not mistaken, off the, can- the coast of Cancun, if I'm not mistaken. I think I remember watching a documentary. They were saying that they were wishing to get rid of uh, those mangroves in order to you know make other hotels and whatnot but it's once again it's just opening it's like opening the door to the storm it's like basically yeah, right in hurricane water. alley exactly yeah. um similarly during storms wetlands also along waterway waterways absorb energy and store water which reduces downstream flooding and flash flood risks uh so you know that's ultimately going to be reducing erosion on the other side and so on so on and so forth water um stored during these events can be can you know help with water flows during drier periods 
Wetland vegetation binds strongly, so strongly to soil and prevents excessive erosion, um, like I was talking about downstream. Um, of course, wetlands provide most of the freshwater supply for human use, be it, you know, for good or bad. Wetlands also support some of the most economically important fisheries. 60 to 9% of the commercial fisheries in the United States depend on wetlands. Uh, wetlands also provide recreational opportunities. Um, and that's just a short list of benefits. We could go on and, like I said, probably have another podcast, you know, about this. Um, and those benefits, of course, you know, extend to wildlife. Um, there are a variety of explanations why wetlands continue to be, you know, degraded and lost despite their value to people. Benefits are often, you know, realized by residents on a local level, kind of what we're talking about in the, you know, the news article. Um, people at this level are often alienated from decision-making processes regarding land use. You know, like, once again, in our news, uh, you know, in Okinawa, they're not even yeah. being considered uh, in terms to their own land usage. The fate of wetlands, such as when it comes to zoning regulations, are determined by people who will not immediately be impacted and who are not held accountable by those who will be impacted. Uh, you know, we're getting flagrant examples of this all across the world. Decision makers are un uninformed about the complete trade-offs when it comes to wetland alter uh, alteration. There's an overall disconnect between wetland condition, ecosystem, ecosystem services, and human benefits. It's kind of, this wetland's in my way. I want to build on it. And how can I do that without, you know, getting, you know, chewed out for it, if you will, you know, financially or politically or so on and so forth. For example, you know, in wetland delineation, a lot of times what you, you know, people aren't happy when they find out that their property has wetland and they have to protect it because they want to build on it or so on and so forth. And a lot of times then, you know, we have, you know, re kind, which is an interesting concept is trying to replace the wetland by creating it somewhere else and trying to restore that wetlands biodiversity and role but by changing its location totally changes its purpose <laughs> you know it's it's yeah, really difficult it, yeah I, I think i talked about i mentioned something about th that that approach to quote-unquote conservation when we had our land ethics episode it's just it's dangerous to think it, it's like justified environmental degradation like right okay well yeah you can do this as long as you make up for it over here and it's that's not how nature it's works very you know? yeah it's very short term you know thinking that you're going to be able to just replace it like that just well just like the corals mm -hmm. okay yeah you can do you can build the base here if you transplant all these corals it's like Okay, but there's more than just the corals. It's not just that structure. Yeah, that corals, takes it's time the whole to form. That wetland formed over time. The wildlife and interactions within you know that ecosystem took time to form, and it's it's specific because of how the, the topography and so forth of that area. So you'll never find an exact identical area. You know, I think forms you know similar but differently from everything else, and so it, it just doesn't make sense. I I understand. I mean, it's. It's one of those things, it's like, I guess it's better than nothing, but at the same time, it's a slippery slope because, once again, people think they can mm -hmm. just get away with it. You know, how much is that going to cost me? Let's get it away. And they, you know, it's like, so that being said, other, you know, benefits of wetland, de you know, degradation to provide, you know, to private entities are exaggerated by subsidies. Um, you know, this is, an ex of course, an issue of historic significance for wetland loss in the U.S. Um Although there have been attempts to put monetary values on wetland services, many services 
are just not marketable according to most current economic systems. Reliance on markets to determine trade-offs when it comes to wetland alteration fail because people don't have sufficient incentive to maintain ecosystem services for the good of modern in modern society. Once again, it's the short-term ideology and mindset that how can I you know progress today and I'm not caring about the impacts for tomorrow and ultimately you know the sad thing is if you were to maintain these wetlands it would be so much more profitable anyways but we're not thinking that way um, finally the benefits of wetland conservation can exceed the benefits of maintaining like I'm saying you know the wetland the catch here is that more wetland we lose the more valuable remaining wetlands become it's like any other resource you know it's it's like uh, elephant tusks you know they're getting more and more expensive and that's where the more and more feeding you know the ivory trade and so on and so forth so basically if you didn't understand this and if you know if those <laughs> around us don't understand this you can tell them without wetlands the world fall, will fall apart um, that is that is the cold hard facts, and it kind of seems like we're heading down that slope, and we've been down, you know, we've been going down that slope, but now it's getting a little bit more precipitous, and <laughs> we're feeling gravity a little bit more now. Um, so it's there's a lot of uh, we have a lot of work to do, and in, in in informing people and doing what steps that we can do. I think you know just to add to everything you said as to why. Um why we continue to degrade wetlands even though they're so valuable and it's because like you said people and you know are only seeing the short term but a lot of the the ways that wetlands benefit people all the things you mentioned yes we can hear them and and understand it but we're not like seeing it it's not like true i'm getting it's not immediate gratification exactly exactly yep that's exactly it. And you're not seeing your, you know, your, you're not replacing it by wheat product, you know, and you don't see your crops harvest, you know, and so on and so forth. You yeah, don't see the you're not getting it. Yeah, it's not going to be on the next check you get. You're not going to see the, the value of it that way. And, um, yeah, I think you're right. That's why ultimately it just. Yeah, and and the loss of these things, you know, some of them we're not. Some of the. Some of the negative effects. You don't see right away either, um, but they will catch up with like salinity. You, you don't see that right away, but it's going to catch up like a bandit because all of a sudden you're not going to the local fish that you were, you know, harvesting before and fishing. They're not, they're going to be dying off. That doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. But then before you know, it, you're not being able to catch anything anymore. And then you know, then all of the um, the trophic pyramid basically, you know, it's it spirals out of control before you know yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, or erosion, you know, erosion could be it's happening gradual, slowly, it, yeah. and then it just takes one big flood event where the riverbanks get wiped out from underneath homes or something like yeah. that. I mean, so it's, this isn't, you know, in addition to just the hugely negative effects that it's having on wildlife populations, these are all things that you can point to somewhere in the world and say, look at this horrible stuff that's happening to people because of destruction and degradation of wetlands and that people can't see that is it's it's disturbing and a lot of times it's just because they don't want to see it you know just like with everything else if it's not happening to me right here i'm just going to kind of turn a blind eye um 
continue and if it happens and hope it doesn't happen to me if it happens to me i'll deal with it then and yeah it's it's hard to feel sorry for um people that behave that way for me at least because i'm a cold hearted (laughs) (laughs) anyways um so in, in the next episode we'll we'll talk about um protection of wetlands we'll talk about some stuff about research having to do with wetlands and and wetlands wildlife and then we want to we want to cover some um we want to highlight some examples of wetlands around the world that are doing well that are doing poorly or that we're doing poorly and are doing better now um and some examples of of how wildlife have been affected there Okay, so for today's sustainability tip, pretty simple, more like sustainability homework. Um, I think, you know, after, after you know, hearing about how important wetlands are, whether you knew it before or not, just take some time to learn about the watershed you live in and, and local wetlands. And, you know, think about how you directly and indirectly benefit from them and how your water use impacts other people and wildlife because uh you know having grown up in san diego a very dry region and in an area that's part of these water wars in the south southwest united states um you know you can tell people how water conservation is really important and they'll say yeah 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 but then when it comes to them having to change their behavior um that's the issue it's like yeah yeah everyone yeah we need to conserve water but you do that not me so just just think about these kind of things and how you are impacting um the the flow of water in the watershed that you live in if you do live in a dry dry area obviously you should be using less water especially you know avoiding using for using water for luxuries and other superfluous things like lawns um you're telling me jonah you don't have the greenest lawn in your neighborhood right now (laughs) (laughs) i don't have a lawn (laughs) there you are that you eliminated at the source or at least turn into a garden or something yeah lawn just i've probably said it before but lawns are just flat out stupid yes uh, invention that we unfortunately inherited inherited from the british among other things yeah um (laughs) But, you know, even if you live in an area with abundant water, you know, think about how your behavior influences water quality and and other things. Because, you know, like living in Maine. Right. There's probably not going to be a shortage of water there, but there's going to be other issues related to wetlands, like wetland quality. Well, that's that's a great example, Jonah. I mean, I I was just thinking, I I live right off of the Androscoggin River. 
for those who name, you know, of the name of the, the thousands of rivers in the United States, the Androscoggin River at one point was one of the top ten most polluted rivers in the United States, and that's primarily due to, you know, so text, you know, textiles and paper mills that were found on the river, and it was, you know, it was putrid. It, there was about a foot of foam that was found on top of the river, and it was even said that you could walk across from town to town on the foam, and that was more or less true because <laughs> I actually was talking to a gentleman that remembered as a small child he would throw rocks on top of the foam and it wouldn't they wouldn't even sink that's how concentrated they were (laughs) and so and and, in that you know greatly affected people's quality of breathing because living by the river uh you know it was able to peel paint off of houses and off cars um and then you know earlier on in the 1880s for example um there was high mortality rates because people were still getting their water from that you know that was they're getting domestic source of water from the from the uh, from the river and being in contacted you know a lot of especially small children were dying and whatnot so it's incredibly huge luckily nowadays it's gotten better but you're still only recommended to eat like two fish a year you know it's not great <laughs> yeah so, I, so yeah so water issues aren't um, limited to dry areas yeah I mean they're just different if they're types poorly of used it's going to be a problem everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Okay. So if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Um, You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Conservation Chronicles. You can email us. Our email is conservationchronicles at gmail.com. And then you can visit our website, for other episodes, conservationchronicles.podbean.com. Thanks for talking with me about wetlands today, Camden. Yes, I look forward to coming we, back. Yeah, we'll have a second episode um, as a follow-up on wetlands because there's just so much to talk about. <laughs>